Next Chapter Podcasts. Meet Pia Casely, a journalist with a nose for a good story. Do you know who the last person to interview Julie Capsom was? Me. Meet Brenda Bentley, a dogged detective with a case she can't let go. Nobody came closer than I did, and that's why I was kicked off the force. Together, they solve the cold cases no one else can. That's when things got weird. And we haven't even gotten to the torso yet. If they don't kill each other first, that is. Well, you've got another thing coming. You know, I think it's you've got another thing coming. Or perhaps there's something else between them. Well, if the feeling's mutual, call it a mutual feeling. Arden. A podcast about crime, romance, and everything else. Season 1 and 2 now available. Brought to you by Wayface Industries. The good people. Hi. My name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. In all of our Play On podcast series, we strive for equality and inclusivity in all respects, including casting. Wherever possible, wherever it makes sense dramaturgically or conceptually or in any way whatsoever, we look for roles that women or gender nonconforming or gender nonspecific actors can play, roles that have been traditionally played by men. We like to think that we're part of the vanguard of this brave new world of inclusivity, but The truth is that there have been many artists and arts organizations that have been way ahead of us for a long time. One of those artists is Lisa Wolpe. She plays a wide range of roles in our play on podcast series, The Winter's Tale, most notably the role of Camillo. That's Leonti's right hand and then Polixeny's right hand. It's a part that has been traditionally played by a man. She also shows her ventriloquist-like skills in other roles throughout the series, including Diane, the old lady-in-waiting, and various gentlemen. And I hope we'll play some clips of all of those characters so that you can get a real sense of Lisa's range vocally. Lisa has continued to help shape and change the narrative of gender in Shakespeare, working with the Shakespeare Theater Association, the National Theater Conference, and Statera Arts to support and amplify the work of women in theater. With support from the Young Vic and King's College, Lisa created and led a month-long Trans Shakespeare Intensive. Lisa created and led a month-long Trans Shakespeare Intensive workshop on Shakespeare and gender in famous scenes from Shakespeare. Ten dramaturgs, 22 actors, 10 directors, and master voice teachers Christine Adair and Darren Oram spent three weeks with Lisa rehearsing together, exploring ways of playing gender in Shakespeare. Lisa's acting work has been seen at Playmakers Rep, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Utah Shakespeare Festival, TheaterWorks, Orlando Shakespeare Festival, and on and on. Her hit solo show, Shakespeare and the Alchemy of Gender, directed by Lori Woolery, has toured universities and Shakespeare festivals around the U.S. It has played internationally at the Prague Shakespeare Company in the Czech Republic, Bremen Shakespeare in Germany, and the Rose Theatre, Central School, King's College, Warwick University, and Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust in the UK. 
Canadian theaters include Vancouver and in Stratford, Ontario. It is an incredible honor to have Lisa with me here today to talk about her work and to talk about our series, The Winter's Tale, as part of the Play On podcast bonus content series for The Winter's Tale. Lisa, thank you so much for being here with me today. What an honor. It's a joy to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, it's it's a thrill to have you. So when did you decide to investigate gender and make it part of your life's work when it comes to Shakespeare? I think it was, I mean, I'm 64, so it was almost 50 years ago um, when I was a young director at UC San Diego. I was an undergraduate director and I chose to direct first Spring Awakening and then The Abdication. I was just interested in feminist theater. I was being cast in things like David Mamet's Sexual Perversity in Chicago, or as Martirio in the House of Bernarda Alba. But I thought the women were very sort of misshapen, grotesque, or naive ingenue. Mm -hmm. My first professional roles were cool. It was Emma in Curse of the Starving Class, and Agnes in Moliere's you know, School for Wives. But it was when I got to Shakespeare that I really thought, this is delicious. And also being kind of an androgynous, bisexual person of the world, I played Viola and was really intrigued by her internal terrain. My ability to sit in uh, meditation for rehearsals for that incredible role for a young person, any young person to play Viola, um, really gave me a sense of a non-binary interiority which to this day I've never called they or them, but anybody who knows me knows I'm a collection of many spirits. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and certainly on the stage, I, I don't play myself. I like to transform into a person. Some people accuse me of leaning on uh, makeup and beards and things like that, but I really do like to play a male silhouette if I'm doing some sort of excoriation of the patriarchy, like playing Leontes. Um but the play on was great because it took away all images. It was like a blind audition for a, a musician where you weren't judged on your skin color or your age or your body shape, but you could just play characters. You gave me a chance to play five different people and rehearse it with really great actors and play it in such a way that the text is highlighted. We're listening to each other. Um, and of course the challenge is acting with great male actors like Elijah Alexander, who has a huge torso and a, a, a reverberating chamber, which which bespeaks power and masculinity. And so I can tell in my early scenes, I'm forcing my voice down a little bit more. And then in the more familiar scenes, I feel more fluid. Like I can just act like a person, a human being with another actor and tell the story. But it's of some concern when you quickly switch gender and age not to become too schmackty because you also want to uh, make the text super clear without any visual cues. And, um, and again, I'm listening to great actors. So it's just humbling to try to respond with sincerity when I'm doing character work, which sometimes feels schmackty. Have you had a lot of experience working on the winter's tale or was this your first dive in? No, it's a play I know by heart. I love this play. I've probably done, I don't know, five productions of it. Many I've directed. I've played Leontes. I've played Hermione. I've played Polina. But it was a huge thrill to get Camillo, which is a terrific role, which nobody ever ever thought of me for. Um, 
And one other role I'm being thought of right now, thought of for right now is Leonidas in Much Ado, which is a similar kind of role. It has great speeches. It's not a title character, but it's a great interactive role where you get to work with all the best actors in the company. So, um, yeah, I think I, th I think it was just a great opportunity. Camillo's a really great role, and um, to work with Rodney Gardner and Kate Vogt and and Elijah was just a thrill. Gina Gina's incredible. Gina Daniels. I listened to all five of the chapters that were available to me as of this morning. I just think you did a brilliant job. The layering of the sound editing, the way that you create this um, labyrinth of the mind for Leontes through a soundscape, which worked better than anything I've actually seen visually on stage to justify his headspace. Uh, usually you see a Christmas party and suddenly there's a spotlight and he's alone having a monologue about jealousy. And you're like, Where, what play is he in? You know, mm -hmm. but this was a really great... Um, almost like Othello, like we could follow the mind of the leading man. And um, and we all got to feed into that uh, performance. And he was a really great vessel to hold such a terrifying play, which is really about domestic abuse in a way, not honoring the female. And then has this amazing feminine uh, uh, finale where, you know, the divine feminine is celebrated and uh, is triumphs over the patriarchy. So it can be a very political play, but I just thought it was very personal and um, and uh, and very well acted and very well edited. I thought the sound designers did a tremendous job, all of you guys together. Well, Lindsay Jones is our sound designer and composer on The Winter's Tale. And, and every episode that has come out is we've, you know, uh, uh, Tracy Young, the director, myself, go through and listen to every phase of of the um, episodes from the dry audio after uh, the incredible work that you actors have done. We listen to it, make sure everything's, you know, in place and uh, pick out any pickups we need to do. But then we go back and listen to um, the first mix, the second mix, the third mix, as Lindsay starts to layer in all of these incredible atmospherics and I just keep on saying to Lindsay, you know, we're going to keep trying to, you know, do something that you can't do. I just want to see what you can't do. <laughs> and somehow or another, he always pulls a rabbit out of a hat and can accomplish just uh, amazing feats as a sound designer. Well, it was I, beautiful. And, and I have to say, Tracy Young is just a genius. And I was yeah. so honored to be in the room with you and Tracy. We I'm just happy. had a great, great conversation yesterday as part of our uh, bonus content series uh, and, and yeah absolutely the right person to direct this uh, and the right person to have done the translation for sure and for me as you say like some of us have been in the winter's tale quite often everything that Tracy would say would be a revelation and I can remember her notes as vividly as I, I heard the performances last night catching up with the most recent episodes I can hear her direction and how that scene was uh, illuminated I can hear the two of you working with Elijah, even as I hear Elijah, um, because we didn't work on it so long ago. It was just a month or two ago. But there was this very, very rich birthing place where we got to talk in depth with some really brilliant actors and artists and directors that really know the play. And all that time we saved on staging and costumes and memorization of lines went into a feeling of building an ensemble on in this post-pandemic way, which is now coming to fruition in a good way. Mm -hmm. uh, 
making work that I'm really proud to be a part of. So you've traced so many journeys through this incredible sprawling epic tale. Is there a particular part that speaks to you more than any other or uh, an arc that you feel is the most fun to ride through uh, uh, all of the characters you've played? Is there a part that really, really feels like, wow, that was the one. I, I love that more than anything else in this whole play. This is the part that I love the most. I, I really feel like there are at least four unforgettable parts that I wouldn't give up ever having played one for the other. I mean, Leontes without Polina, Polina without Hermione. For me, it's really about rotating from position to position. And as a Shakespeare scholar and expert going like, oh, on a feeling note, now I get it because now I'm the recipient of that. So for instance, in this project that I got to do with you, playing Camillo, which I think is a really important act of civil disobedience, when the tyrant tells you to kill somebody and you don't do it. I think that's really important. It's a kind of courage or time of the heart that is what sets Camillo up to be someone that Polina could marry, that they're both politically passionate about uh, taking action, living a life of action and spirit and uh, having faith. So I... In my life, the best experience is to play Leontes because I like to run that anger through my body. It sort of clears through my all of the victim stuff I have to live through as a female and as a lesbian. I can just run it through me with brilliant text work and go, bam, you know, mm. this, this may be a house of cards built on a false premise, but boy, here's brilliance in the wrong direction. <laughs> mm. And mm. then to be on my knees and pull my torso open and be sorry, truly sorry, and and feel like I can be on my knees for 16 years. It feels like I can replace what I don't see in our own political situation as real accountability when men are uh, predatory or short-term thinkers or um, committing acts of violence against our democracy or against the women in the world. There's very few that really feel sorry. So playing Leontes, I feel, is important that way. And how how his understanding of Polina grows over time until they're almost like partners. But this patience that women endure, women and Jewish people and queer people and people of color and all the people that I try to fight for in my life or the people that I am in my life. Um, it's just, uh, there's a tremendous amount of patience involved, which is not the same thing as running anger through your body. So in a way, it's of no interest to me anymore to play Hermione <laughs> because I've, I've expanded the bounds of my maidenly patience and it kind of broke the container. I didn't have it anymore. I kind of had to move into the masculine to change the world for our, our daughters and our sisters and our friends that want to play outside the box. And when I think about a company like play on overall, which has given me maybe eight or nine chances to do cool things, they've let me play Falstaff in the Henry plays. And that's incredible. Mm -hmm. It was the funniest role I've ever played. It's so unusual because mm -hmm. I don't have the physical heft or I'd never be the first choice. But I made Oscar Eustace laugh. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a feather in your cap. It's a feather in my cap just to have played. <laughs> and now that I'm older, um, some things I'm revisiting, like I'm about to play Richard III for the fourth time because it's terribly difficult to play Richard III really well. 
and find that line between the humorous and the dastardly and the political and the and the vulnerable and the demon and the devil. There's a lot of stuff going on in that play. Um, some that I'd love to do again. The Winter's Tale is like a perfect prism. You just keep turning it. It's like that little um, uh, Christmas shaker scene, you know, mm. in a way. I just, I think it's so perplexing. Yeah. And and winter in terms of age and time, was so it, it was so exciting to hear time read so well yesterday. Um, what a cast. Yeah, Estelle Parsons as time is just a... Uh one of those things it's just serendipity you know that that worked out and and uh, her voicing that speech it's, it's what more could you ask for it's very wanna, satisfying <laughs> it's so interesting to me you've mentioned so many things about these characters hermione and patience that hermione for sure em embodies patience her character is patience in the same sense that time is time yes that She's in stasis essentially for 16 years, waiting for what? For for the right moment to come back, to allow Leontes back. Uh, and that that you have to embody that. Uh, and that is, I hear you saying, that is ultimately a very feminine quality, patience. Is that true? I think you have to decide as a director if you believe that's true mm. i feel that hermione whose name also means harmony um is waiting for perdita whose name means the lost one mm. that she hears as she collapses uh the um the oracle's words uh if that which is lost be not found that which is lost perdita is found and perdita will inherit uh the crown and so this validates Queen Elizabeth on the throne. Hmm. This is why Mamilius has to die, because the boy is just like his father, and he's going to grow up doing the same thing. Hmm. Um, and the world has to change. And it uh -huh. goes into this wild spiritual realm, which is where Antigonus sees the ghost of Hermione over the waters, um, casting her process. But you see she's already alive almost as a divine um, entity, in that interim time, because we, we meet her on the ship. I mean, either you stage that you see her or you don't, or Antigonus just says what she said. But as a divine entity who has influence, is flowing into people's hearts, often she becomes the bear that tears Antigonus apart. The difference between Antigonus saying, well, this child is probably a bastard child of, of Polixenes and should die here on its mother soil, and Camillo, who says, oh, heck no. I am not taking that little life in my hand for a crazy man. Right. It stops here. Do you know the reason I think he ha um, Antigonus has to be destroyed by a bear who is sometimes played by Hermione is because there is a kind of ferocious, relentless march of time towards balancing um, feverish male sex murder with reason and due process of law and some rights for women in defense of themselves. We know that over 50% of the murders in the world are, are, are sexual jealousy committed by men who are married to their victims. I mean, it's a huge thing, sexual jealousy wow. results in murder. And so it's not nothing that um, Hermione is seemingly dead and Perdita is seemingly dead, but that they rise from the ashes, if you will, of this bonfire 
such as King James built for so many innocent women that he thought were witches. Mm -hmm. So just reflecting upon a time where Queen Elizabeth and her powers need to be respected and the tyrants themselves needed to be taught a lesson, I think this play does it better than Measure for Measure, where mm -hmm. I don't see Angelo being sorry. I don't see any real win for either of the women in those plays. Um, just don't get it. Perplexing. Mm -hmm. Interesting to play, you know, a supposed priest raping a supposed novitiate. Interesting to see. It's definitely something we have in the world. But I'm not sure how it really measures up to men's accountability, the things they make women do. I'm, I'm leaping into another play, but this is the joy of being able to do them together with great people for a long time. There's similarities that get worked out differently. And The Winter's Tale is like a brand new form. It's very right. poetic. And there's such a dialectic between the plays, right? I mean, that they do talk to each other. Obviously, they're written by the same person, ultimately. So, and we've just done Measure for Measure, you know, so it makes total sense to reference that. Uh, and you can't understand the plays unless... I mean, you understand them better once you have uh, experienced them all together in some fashion. Agreed. Yeah, it really is a body of work that, and I love the way you're rolling out the the chapters of the pro podcast, because to me, I actually want to hear episode six. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, you know, you know, Shakespeare would be writing for HBO or something. You know, I mean, like he, we'd be addicted to incredible series if 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 this writer were alive today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm managing an addiction even given the circumstances. Um, but it is lovely to feel the cliffhangers and the structure of the development of the play, which Louis Douthat is so good at teaching, you know, mm -hmm. five-act play, how it develops in Shakespeare. And then how is it different? I'm, I'm wondering as you, as you roll it out through podcasts, I guess you get a lot of feedback from your end. Well, we know they're popular. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of downloads. So people are listening. Uh, at least we know that. But I, I'm anxious to get a little bit more um, a discourse with our audience and and maybe open up forums. Boy, it would be great to have you lead some some uh, online forums to discuss these plays. It's it, 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 because there is no end to the conversations we can have. I find it very exciting to talk about the plays, especially with today's students that are so interested in identity and gender and and also safe spaces, because that's that's just different now. And that's one thing you can do on the radio. Like do, You can try things with your imagination. And people are really um, flinching now after two and a half years of isolation. Um, mm -hmm. So it just seemed like a night. It was intimate. I actually had a callback for a Broadway show um, just before I left New York, just after I finished your, working with you. And it was the first time I'd gone into a room and auditioned for human beings in years. Mm -hmm. What is that for an actor? Not to have been in a room matching the level of excitement around the opportunity in person, you know? Yeah. But it's I really so strange auditioning on on tape, right? I mean, going into a room and being in the, the sort of ephemera with, with people is half of the booking the job, I would think. Yeah, and I think if there's a downside to having a podcast is we don't get to talk with the audience afterwards, you know? Exactly. We don't get to talk about, oh, I never heard that before. That was so well performed. Like, Gina is very grounded, and uh, her Hermione is not some uh, filled-out 
form from previous productions. She really is reckoning with every word that she speaks mm-hmm. uh, in a brave new way. And I, I just love to sit with Gina and listen to her talk about what it was like. <laughs> but uh, we weren't always in the same room. It is. That is the strange sort of detachment of the process in in this particular uh medium you know uh, doing these these play on podcast series we do get that gratification of hearing them once they're all put together but strangely the actor is at the beginning of the process in these the uh, simply giving the voice usually the actor comes in after all the design elements have sort of been chosen and gets to live it night after night after night if if you're on stage or even on a, a film or television set. All of that sort of everything else is in place. In this process, the actor uh, is the sort of almost the, one of the very first parts. It is the first part of the soundscape. Yeah, I love that. I love it. It's almost like doing Foley for a cartoon. Yeah. Uh, but it was it, we got a lot of um, permission to play. We got to do three takes of everything, not not three takes of the same, but three different takes. And yeah. so um, it's just a thrill to listen to. Because one thing about all the plays that I do is I never see them. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm in right. them. I can't watch them. Exactly. You know. But it's really great just to listen with such um, interest to the words spoken by such great friends. Um, yeah. You mentioned Lisa that you don't use the they them uh uh as a pronoun is that is am i accurate in saying that i haven't yet wanted to do it i really resent the pronoun circles for myself i i know they're serving other people so i'm happy to play along but it doesn't help me define what i've been working on my whole life which is strangers strangers walking up to me in the street saying are you a girl or a boy since I was four, like all like the the assumption that people get to know who you are, and that they can challenge you on what is your sexuality and who do you sleep with and what do you have under your pants? It's just a lot of um, complicated private information. Not for me because I have a female body and I was married to a man for twelve years and then I was gay and married to a woman for sixteen years. But as a person, as a child, I found it very intrusive. Like people mm-hmm. are asking much more interested in my pronouns than they are in getting to know me. Mm-hmm. Like they can scrape me into their political movement and use it to justify something. I don't know what, why can't Hamlet be a man who's born as a woman who's now trans, who's in love with Horatio. I, I have no problem with anybody's close readings or their adaptations of Shakespeare. I just think personhood and the work should be separate and I feel it's very intrusive to start rehearsal rooms with what are your pronouns? Do you know, I just think it's a mm. lot, but I get that some people need that now. Mm. It, and I was talking to this with a tomboy lesbian that I really enjoy an intellectual giant in my field last week. And it was funny because she and I were both livid because the young people were coming up saying, well, we've got two different badges. There's pink. If you're feeling particularly feminine, you could put this purple overlay and I'm like, is this like the Jewish star in World War II? Like, mm. what business is it of yours to know my shade of meaning? I am a survivor in an obviously patriarchal, heteronormative world that hates Jews and lesbians. Now, you're coming in here trying to give me another identity because of something. And I don't, I'm just telling you, I don't resonate with it. What I've been fighting for is my bandwidth as a person who identifies as she to cut my hair short or play Hamlet or Shylock or direct a play on Broadway, or rise in my field or be paid a living wage. 
me, she, Lisa Volpe, with this voice that can play male or female, do you know, with mm-hmm. this body that can marry a man or a woman, with this age that can play young or old, or even non-human, I can play a god. I can. Mm-hmm. My next role is Tiresias, an old blind man. I'm an actor. It's a practice, a somewhat sacred practice of shape-shifting so that we understand the world around us a little bit better. And to me, people coming by me and asking for a pronoun feels like a brand new box. Mm-hmm. And a box that doesn't advance anything for me. It just feels vague to me. Like, I'm not sure what I'm claiming. Mm-hmm. And if you were my partner, we could talk about all the ways that you like to drive the car and I like to clean the dishes or you like to do the laundry and I like to buy the food. Or, But those things are just performative gender roles. They don't have real meaning. Do you know? Mm-hmm. They don't have real meaning for me. I don't care who drives the car. I can drive the car or be the navigator and pick the music. I don't know why the pronoun thing has gotten so out of control, but I feel like my issues are more like Charlotte Cushman was the most famous actress in the entire world, most highly paid actress. She played Hamlet and Romeo better than any man on the planet. Everybody knew that. She was queer. Everybody knew that. And it wasn't until lesbians became hated after she died that her entire career was erased, as if she'd never lived. And so those are my heroes, my sheroes. Do you know, Mm -hmm. like, how Mm -hmm. dare you erase Charlotte Cushman, the greatest actress in the world? 50,000 people would come out in New York City just to watch her walk out on a balcony. Mm. And then since then, they've decided that being lesbian is bad. Whereas at that time, they thought, oh, that's a pretty virtuous woman. She doesn't run around with men like the other actresses do. She has one person at home, her wife, and um, what can they do anyway? They're two women. So it wasn't vilified. So I think, I feel like I don't want to create more boxes where people are potentially hated. And I will participate if that's what people need to survive the room. However, my students today all over the world are having this new shift into wanting to play their own identity more than transform into a character such as Shakespeare might have written. And then they want to transform Shakespeare into who they are, even before they've done a close read. So I think it's great if Tracy Young decides to regender the gentleman in the pub with the old gentlewoman, because there's a lot of reasons for that. One, we've met the old gentlewoman. It's not just yet another voice that we can't identify. Two, I as an actress can build on that. Three, I as an actress can play a man and a woman in the same scene. You know, there's a lot of reasons for it. But um, hopefully the reasons are artistic and having to do with bandwidth. And I don't know, I just think what you're doing is great, giving great roles to actors outside of what the casting box usually keeps us from. And I want to do a shout out to Telsey, who's been so helpful in that. They, they're always- Karen Castle, Karen Castle, our casting director at Telsey and Company. Karen Castle I, is sorry, a goddess. The Telsey Company, yes. And Ada Karamanyan, they are very, Ada very Karamanyan powerful. is our casting consultant and just incredibly uh, gifted at at uh, bringing up names uh, and actors that we never, ever would have otherwise thought of. Uh, she is phenomenal. Yeah, Thank and I've met a ton of non-binary actors through Ada's work and through Playon's work, playing roles that they're smashing it in that they've never played before. Tell me more about Charlotte Cushman. This is news to me. When when did she live? What era? So Charlotte Cushman lived from 1816 to 1876. 
And she had a very full voice. She started as a singer. Um, her father uh, fell upon hard times and she had to go to work at 13. And she became an actress playing Romeo and enlisted her young sister to play Juliet. She became a phenomenon when she went to Europe and played uh, Lady Macbeth with MacReady as Mackers, and then um, built a tremendous career, including having her own theater in downtown New York City, where she did a different play every day and kept prices affordable for admission. Um, but she famously uh, went to the actor Edwin Booth's wife. Edwin was playing Hamlet on Broadway, and they were uh, demeaning Charlotte's work. So Charlotte went to Edwin's wife and said, may I borrow Edwin's Hamlet costume for the evening? She was given the costume. She played Hamlet in his costume to incredible reviews and basically um, proved him wrong. Mm. And then her bust was at uh, the Players Club in New York City. The Players is Edwin Booth's ancestral home, which was a gentleman's club where women were not allowed and where we now meet for the National Theater Conference. I'm actually one of the people saying, I don't think we should meet here, mm. partly because there's so many stairs and no elevators, and partly because women were never allowed there. People of color were never allowed there. Mm. And first time I walked in there, I was standing in front of this little white bust of Charlotte Cushman on the mantelpiece, asking the docent, so where is Charlotte Cushman's bust? And she said, who? Ah. I said, okay, so this is Charlotte Cushman, who was the greatest player of them all. And there are no pictures of her on any of these walls. So this thing is, there's a story where he, uh, Edwin Booth literally turned the bust of Charlotte Cushman to the wall when she died because she had shamed him by bettering his performance. And if you go to Central Park and you go to the Bethesda Fountain, the angel that is sculpted there is Charlotte Cushman. It was sculpted by her wife, Emma Stebbins. The two of them had a house in Rome called Casa Cushman, where they would um, allow young female writers to come and write under their patronage so that the women wouldn't have to write what their husbands and brothers uh, expected from them. They could get away from the financial pressures of their parents and um, and become the genius uh, writers or sculptors that they were meant to be. So it's a very powerful story. I have 40 boxes of Charlotte Cushman's original letters. I'm a writer in residence with the Shakespeare uh, Birthplace Trust in Stratford-upon-Avon, access to that library. And the first thing I said when I went there as a lesbian Shakespeare player was, where are the lesbian Shakespeare players? And mm. they only had three books in the whole library. Mm. Um, so what is cool is they are now going to um, house my uh, archives for the LA Women Shakespeare Company. And so the 40 years of work that I've done crossing gender with women and then with men and then with trans people, uh, they, there will be video and scripts and photographs somewhere in the world in Stratford-upon-Avon in that uh, archive for the next you know person who wants to know did anybody ever live that played the male roles it's like oh yeah forever it's been done it's been done forever like if, if I had known that when I started it would have been easier this concludes part one of my interview with Lisa Volpe be sure to listen next week to part two you can learn more about the Play On Podcasts at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcast.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end, dot com, where you can find other Play On Podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like the 500, the 10, the Tough Juice podcast with Karan Butler, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcasts, and our producer, Peter Musto. 
Our audio engineer and editor is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works with you in the Play On podcast series, along with lots of enlightening, enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcast. Looking for an RPG podcast that isn't just D&D? Roll to cast is the answer. No, no, wait, sorry. What games have we played so far? Well, we've done Cyberpunk 2020. Hulk Cthulhu. Vampire the Masquerade. The Witcher. Kids on Bikes. Avatar Legends. And Cyberpunk Red. Roll to cast. R-O-L-E. A new game every season. Original music. Original stories. Interviews with the creators. And delightful Aussie accents. Listen to us on all good podcatchers. Even support us on Patreon for bonus content. Content. That's Roll to Cast. R O L E. Come discover a new world. Next chapter podcasts.